Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Welcome back. The rally was something out of this world. We have been feeling a new kind of unity of our nation online and at home, but this was on a whole other scale. It was uplifting to see so many kinds of Jews standing together. This is what American jury brings to the table, and it felt so useful to participate and be active. I know there were some communities who did not participate on the more yeshiva spectrum. I also saw the OU coverage that discussed their participation in the Yom Kippur Katan fast on Monday, and everyone's just doing their part at a time where it's so easy to just judge people who had the capacity to send another at least 100,000 people to the rally. We have to see and recognize that they contribute in a different way. It's not my place, at least not right now, to discuss that. My mind and heart dreads the moment I wake up, think about the names that are about to pop up on my WhatsApp news notifications about the fallen soldiers. I just can't bear it anymore. It is so painful. How much more loss has to happen? I pray for all our soldiers to come home safely, for our hostages to come home safely, so we can put this behind us, so we can begin to rebuild, to move forward, to start again. I have been meaning to announce the entire month, but it didn't feel relevant. As November is ending, I wanted to share with you that November is the birthday month of this podcast, The Francisca Show. I'm so grateful and proud to be celebrating seven years of hosting this show with you. Doing this podcast gave me a sense of purpose and fulfillment, something I always wanted to feel. I'm grateful that Hashem led me into this work, and I hope to continue serving you, my extended family, my Jewish community, with many more years of topics and episodes to come. People like to ask me who my audience is, and over the years of getting messages and meeting more of you online and in person, my answer is, we have the entire scope of orthodoxy, from Hasidim, Haredim, Balei Tshuva, Balei Tshuva include Geirim, Chabad, Yeshivish, Orthodox, Modern Orthodox, Ex-Orthodox, even some conservative, traditional, and reform. We have a diverse age range as well. But what all of you have in common, besides for understanding English, is having an interest in Jewish topics discussed with a critical eye. You are intellectuals. You are observers, critics, thinkers. You experience life with a little extra depth and oomph. So here we are together, and I appreciate you very much. I appreciate you for listening, for sending feedback, for volunteering to speak, for suggesting topics, guests, for caring. With a project like this, I don't want to limit myself by wishing it to become something specific in a few years or next year. So I'll give this podcast a bracha to keep up with my sense of purpose and fulfillment and interest. And may Hashem and you guide me toward the right topics, people, and conversations to make our world a better place, one episode at a time. I only ask for that because that's what's essential for me to keep doing this work. I am able to keep putting in the hours week after week, year after year, because you are listening and because you tell me to keep going. I'm grateful for all the backend connections, relationships, community, support, and love that comes out of this podcast, both for our guests and listeners. 
This works because I'm listening to your pain, your stories, our pain and our stories. Soon we will begin to introduce back onto the podcast the everyday topics we used to have before October 7th. Because the issues we have had before are often amplified or denied airtime in a time of war. However, the conversations need to still happen, but they will not be the same. October 7th changed us as human beings, as Jews, and we will always experience our lives carrying this pain and loss with us. I would love to interview wives of reservists, reservists and soldiers, family members of our murdered and kidnapped sisters and brothers. My platform will always be available to you just like it is for survivors of abuse. Our No More Silence series that started five years ago. Before we start the episode, I'd like to remind you that this is a Jewish coffeehouse podcast, which means there are other amazing podcasts on the network. So make sure to check out Orthodox Conundrum, Intimate Judaism, Chochmat Nashim, and Let My People Eat on whatever podcast app you use to listen to your podcasts. So here we go. Welcome back to the Francisco Show, Dr. Dini Wasserman. It's so great to have you back. Thank you. You are an ER doctor in Ashdod. You have lots of information and stories that you are willing and able to share with us today. And I'm happy to use this platform to share more about what's happening on the ground, what's happening on the medical side of things when you where you see what's actually happening in people's lives. I think doctors and, and rabbis get a preview <laughs> into people's lives that others don't, therapists yeah. also. So tell us a little bit about yourself professionally and religiously, and then we'll jump into our topic. Yes. As you said, I'm an ER doctor. I trained in America and then I made Aliyah three years ago. So I live and work in Ashton. Religiously, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, my dad was the rabbi there. They actually made Aliyah about a year and a half ago as well. So my whole family's here now. Thank you for that. A lot of people have been wondering what's going on. I think it's hard to know exactly what's going on if you're not physically here. And so I feel like a lot of the people who have reached out to me, you know, I still have a lot of family and friends not in Israel. And they're the ones who seem to be constantly reaching out to be like, are you okay? What's going on? What's this? And I think it's good to kind of share the boots on the ground day to day, what's happening, just so people can get a good picture. Old fashioned reporting. So you were doing interesting stuff. You weren't even in Israel on October 7th. Let's go back a little bit. So I was in Ukraine, actually. I, I threw connections with a friend of mine from residency in the States, not Jewish. I hooked up with a, an NGO from America that has been doing teaching in Ukraine and specifically emergency and trauma teaching for the because of the war there. And I recruited one of the local ER doctors that works with me here, another Israeli, and the two of us joined their team and we went to Ukraine. So it was a very long drawn out process to get there because there are no flights to Ukraine because of war. So we flew to Poland and then we took a bus and, and a car and a bunch of trains and then we rented cars Basically, it took us two days to get there, and we were staying in, in Kharkiv in Ukraine. 
And I got there, Cholomoid Sukkis, and I found the Chabad shul, the shul there. It's a very big shul. They had a huge community there before the war. Now the rabbi and the rabbit center are still there. And I kind of, I hooked up with them just, you know, it was nice to have food. And they invited me over and it turned out our hotel was next to their house. So I was having dinner with them. And then Friday, Erev Simchas Torah, Shemini Atzeres, we woke up uh, a little before 7 a.m., a very loud boom and all the windows and all the doors there was a rocket that fell about 10 meters from our hotel and from the blast our hotel was destroyed thank god we were all fine you know my room had some window and some door damage there was a lot of rubble in the stairwells and the hotel was not inhabitable after that but we were all fine so the rabbi and also their house was damaged and i went i went over there to check on them and after that, because it was Friday, I was very nervous about what our sleeping arrangements were going to be. You know, my colleague who was with me is not religious and the rest of the group isn't Jewish. So I was worried about Chavez. So I asked the the Rebetzin if I could sleep in the shul. When I told my group I'd sleep in the shul that night. And then the next day, once Chavez, after Yemtif was over, I would hook back up with them wherever they ended up staying. So that's how I found myself in the shul. And it's a beautiful, a big building, three stories with a basement, and they ran a school out of there. So it was like lots of classrooms. So I was on a mattress in a classroom Friday night, all good. Shabbos morning, they're doing what's Shminiatzeris, Zimchastora, they do both together. You know, for me, it's obviously both. And we're sitting outside in the rain in the Sukkah because for them, it's Shminiatzeris. And suddenly I see my colleagues standing there. And I said to him, What are you doing here? Like, you weren't planning on coming. And he just looked at me and he was like, do you know what's going on? I was like, what do you mean? Do I know what's going on? You know, I had heard there were some rockets, you know, not everyone in their community is is religious. So some people had their phones and they said something was going on in Israel. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. There's, there's terrorists inside. And I was like, what do you mean there's terrorists inside? Like two? He's like, no, no, no. There's thousands of terrorists inside and they're just, they're, they're just running around. He was like, they're at Ofakim and the army is nowhere. And this is 10 o'clock in the morning, right? And in Ukraine, it's the same time as, as Israel. So this is real time. So we both were kind of just completely like everyone in shock. We have a few friends and colleagues who live in the Gaza envelope. So in the kibbutzim there and in Stavot. So we were texting them to find out if they were okay. Some of them were, were not there. Uh, some of them were closed in their mamads and, you know, sending intermittent messages. So it was a really crazy day. And we kind of spent the day just, he stayed for a while and then left. And I was just kind of wandering around trying to do Yagdiv, but really distracted and not really sure what to do with myself. And as soon as Shabbos ended, you know, for that, everybody else, it was still Yagdiv. So I ran downstairs to get my phone and you're just getting these reports of information and you don't know what's real and what's not and how bad it is. And it was just, it, it was it was really hard to paint a picture of what was actually going on. And we already, when it was still Shabbos, you know, I said, of course we're going home. I don't know when and I don't know how we're going home because we were in a place where it wasn't as simple as just getting on a plane. Not when all of this happened, like before the war broke out, we still couldn't get on a plane and go home. It took us two days to get there. So basically Saturday night, 
It was one of those, and I was trying to describe people the feeling of obviously being here in Israel was insane and scary, but being an Israeli and being away was so hard because you just, you just feel, I don't know how you would say it in, in Hebrew, it was chasavonim. It's helpless, but it's, you just don't know what to do with yourself. And so what you do is you turn on the news, but listening to the news nonstop is also really bad for you. So it's, you're unable to disconnect, but at the same time, you can't, you can't take all that information. Yeah. So you need to feel connected, but it's really bad to be that connected. So I had like the live news on all Saturday night. And of course we're still in Ukraine. So there's air raid sirens going off all night. It was a very weird, bizarre combination of going from one war and trying to get to another war. So to make a long story short, Sunday morning, we spoke to our boss. And of course, in our hospital in Ashdod, which is right maybe 30 kilometers from, from Gaza, on that Shabbos on Silchat Torah, they got maybe 80 injured from the whole, from the party, from the soul, everything, which were a small hospital. For us, that's a mass casualty incident. They called everybody in. And it was that extra feeling of guilt that something happened at home and you weren't there. And they were fine. Everybody came in and everybody managed, but they basically said, come home. We're fine right now. The, the day after and the few days after, it was quiet. Everybody stayed home. The, the event happened and now they were just kind of waiting to see what else happened but we needed to get home. So I made a bunch of phone calls. I just needed to figure out which city in Europe to get to that I could then get a flight to Israel. And on Sunday, I was able to get tickets out of Barcelona for Thursday night. So this is already five days in advance and they were the last tickets. And then we worked backwards from there. So once we knew we were flying out of Barcelona on Thursday night on LL, we booked a flight from Warsaw to Barcelona, and then we took three trains over the span of 24 hours to get from Kharkiv to Warsaw. So we ended up leaving Kharkiv on Tuesday night, it took 24 hours to get to Warsaw. So that was Wednesday night, and then Thursday morning, flew from Warsaw to Barcelona, and then Barcelona to Israel, and I got back on, on Friday morning, so six days after the war started. And I went straight to work, literally from the airport. <laughs> I went straight to work. And I begged them. I begged them to put me on a shift. I was like, please make me feel like I'm doing something. And the joke was they didn't they didn't really have to put me on that shift. But I was like, please make me feel like I'm coming back to something like I have something to do. Because as soon as I got back and as soon as I had work, you feel like your feet are just a little bit more on the ground. And it's not that just like floating in the air feeling that you don't know what to do with yourself. So you get back to Israel Tell us what's happening, the aftermath. I come back, and like I said, I went straight to work. So you see everybody, and the ER is weird because when a disaster happens, there can be this initial spike, and you never know when it's going to happen. So, you know, that Saturday, there was a mass casualty incident. There were tons of patients, and then nothing. And because there were rockets and we're in Ashdod, and because there was a war, nobody came to the ER. So for like a week, we had almost no patients. People came, but really only the most emergent emergencies, as opposed to our usual volume of patients. And on the other hand, we were very well staffed because we were all nervous about things happening. 
and it reminded a lot of like this is how they felt during certain parts of corona not the end parts but in the beginning there were periods where we were very well staffed but there were less patients coming because people were just afraid to leave the house so it's this weird feeling of you're sitting there and on the one hand you're not working that hard so to speak but in the er you never know when things are gonna get spicy so you have to be there we never close the er ever so at the beginning there was a lot of this desire all of us wanted to be at work because we didn't know what to do with ourselves otherwise nobody wanted to sit at home nobody wanted to do anything else but on the other hand there was this recognition of everybody was dropping everything and volunteering and working so many hours but it was coming to the realization of this is not going to be a short thing. This is going to be a long thing. And we need to kind of reserve strength to be able to keep this up for a long time. Because at some point, the patients need to come in and people get tired of sitting at home. And so you end up having these weird spikes of busyness that you need to be able to take care of. Work becomes this like love-hate relationship of I have something to do and somewhere to go. But also it's very stressful to go to work <laughs> and deal with sick people at baseline. And then on top of that, a lot of the, the patients that come in now are basically all the sirens cause people fall down. Pe you know, people think about getting hit by a rocket. Yeah. But that's not most of the injuries we see. Most of the injuries we see is people who have um, anxiety because of the siren who fall down running to a, a shelter. We had a really sad case uh, a couple weeks ago of a nine-year-old girl who basically her heart had a heart stopped. attack. Yeah, she had a heart attack. So that was by us. And basically they found out that she had an undiagnosed genetic disorder that caused her heart to essentially go into an abnormal rhythm. And just the stress of the siren is what triggered it. Whereas if we hadn't been in wartime, probably she would have played sports and fainted and then gone to the doctor and, and figured all that out. That's usually how we discover those things. But it happened to be related to the siren because it just caused so much stress that this underlying issue that was undiagnosed, that's what happened. So we have all these things that are war adjacent, but definitely related. And then, you know, as the weeks go on, we start seeing people who are really, really sick. And part of the reason is because they were too nervous to leave the house when they first started not feeling well or feeling something was wrong. And by the time they come to us, they're already very sick, very bad infections or had a heart attack a week ago and, you know, didn't come in when they had just pain because they were nervous about it. So it, it's we've seen this type of thing before and we're still just starting to figure out how we're going to deal with it. Because on top of all of that, the usual outpatient, like the clinics and the family doctors, a lot of those services are less because people are unavailable. They're in Miluim or their kids aren't in school or the clinics aren't open. And so people don't have access to the regular care that they're used to getting. And all of that ends up being coming to the ER. So people often ask me, oh, you must be so busy at work. And they think about, you know, people more injuries, basically soldiers from Gaza being brought to us. And we do get some of those, but the most of our work is these kind of secondary casualties of war that nobody really thinks about, but that's really what day-to-day -day life is like, is how do you function in whatever type of normal you can function in 
while all this is going on around you. What's it like when an injured soldier comes? We've had a few. Yesterday, we had a we had a busy day. I wasn't there, but they had a bunch of helicopters bring six soldiers at once. But in general, everyone everyone gets very involved when an injured soldier comes in. The first of all, they come in usually by helicopter, which we're not used to having because almost nobody flies by helicopter in Israel. The the place is so small. But in wartime specifically, we're they're being brought in by helicopter, and they're pretty extensive injuries that they're not, that we're not used to seeing here. The most common kind of trauma is what we call blunt trauma. So car accidents or people falling, you know, out of windows or things like that. And the smaller percentage of trauma is what we call penetrating trauma. So stab wounds and gunshot wounds. So just that baseline penetrating trauma is much less common to see. I trained somewhere where it was a very, very common, North Philly, which is one of the most dangerous areas in the United States. And we see people who are shot all the time. So I personally have had a lot of experience with that. But even on top of that, when it comes to war injuries, you're seeing it's not just, you know, a handgun. You're seeing injuries from automatic weapons and grenades, RPGs, rockets that are dropped on tanks. And so it's a very different kind of challenge. And while on the base level, this is what we do. But on the other hand, unless you've worked extensively in a war zone before, these are the types of injuries that you just don't have that much experience with. Unfortunately, now, you know, we have a whole group and generation of of doctors that are that feel much more comfortable with these kind of things, because we've just seen a lot, even just October 7th, I can tell you the staff here, just the amount that they saw, they there was just a lot of more, more a lot more comfortable um, with these kinds of patients. So you kind of get used to this new normal of, okay, this is what's coming in. This is the kind of equipment I need. This is the kind of injuries that I'm anticipating. So you do get a little bit of a shift in that sense. Of course, there's all the emotional element of it. You know, as soon as they see the helicopters, the whole city, you know, my, my, my nail lady called me yesterday and said, is everything okay? And I was like, why would not, why would everything not be okay? She was like, helicopters just landed in a suta and I got a video and I got a, and I got a voice chat and I was like, honey, I, there's a war and I'm sure there are people injured, but I can tell you that like they haven't called in anybody extra. So it's okay. So that was, that's kind of like, you know, one of those, it's a big city with a small town feel. Everyone wants to know what's going on. And especially when a soldier comes in, everyone's really nervous and wants to know and wants to see, but it's also really important not to give that information. There's there's ways that things are relayed and it's very important that they're relayed in that fashion. You know, we don't want someone looking and seeing and then telling and someone, people, other people know about a soldier being injured before their family knows, for example. Is there HIPAA in Israel? So there's no HIPAA. It's very interesting. There's no HIPAA. There's no privacy law per se. However, there is the concept of patient privacy. The laws are different. So it's not as rigid as HIPAA, but there are definitely certain types of patient privacy laws. I can tell you that it's definitely more fluid here and people kind of (laughs) tend to bend the rules. But specifically when it comes to high profile cases, and I consider any soldier that comes in a high profile case, and even not in wartime, when we have kids come in or police officers, I try very hard not to disseminate any information and to tell the staff not to disseminate any information. 
but it's hard because also a lot of people, it's all word of mouth. This one knows this one, this one knows that one. I remember this was not during the war, but we had a case of someone who came in, a police officer who was in a car accident and came in and nobody like knew who he was when he came in and the nurse, the charge nurse who was working that day came in and then just started screaming because she knew the guy. You know, when you live in a stone, even though it's a big city, like you said, it has that feeling of a small town. So we try to be very careful with the, when the soldiers are coming in. At the beginning of the week, I had a soldier come in. We had a case. We weren't sure how many we were getting. We ended up just getting one. He came in. He was awake. He was talking. He had a shrapnel injury. A what injury? We, I had a shrapnel injury. Which so, is what? Uh, so shrapnel is like the metal fragments from a bomb or a rocket or a bullet. And so he got a piece of metal inside his body and we were getting him stabilized to be able to go to get a CT scan and then go to the operating room. And because he was awake, one of the staff, there's all this army staff that now lives in the hospital for any soldier that shows up. There's all this bureaucratic stuff they have to go through. And then he said, do you want to call your mom? <laughs> and he said, yeah. So we relayed the, the number. We called his mom. We put her on speaker. He was like, mom, don't cry. I'm okay. Like, it was nice that we were able to connect that. And so I knew that, okay, the family knows, we know who he is. But, you know, everyone talked about, like, why has it been taking so long to know who's missing, who's dead? It takes a very long time because they want to be 100% sure before we relay information. And even just something as simple as soldiers have dog tags, but you don't know what happened. You don't know if someone took someone else's dog tag so you have to be 100% sure when you're identifying people. So that has another layer of just kind of emotion and, and sort of hysteria. But it's, you know, our job is just to keep everything smooth and cool and business as usual. And just like any other trauma, because the second you let it turn into something bigger, that's when it runs away from you and you don't actually end up being able to do your job well. So from the outside, it's that same, you know, and I'm sure it's like that from inside Israel, everyone's like, okay, we're kind of going about our lives and it's kind of terrible and also kind of normal. And when you're not here, you kind of feel like what's going on? Is everything okay? So the same thing in the hospital, I feel like, I feel like everyone's like, wow, you must be so busy with work. And I feel kind of guilty because I've had shifts where I've just been, you know, sitting twiddling my thumbs because it's two o'clock in the morning and nobody's coming to the ER because it's wartime and nobody wants to come to the ER at two o'clock in the morning. Ironically, not at wartime. People love coming to the ER at two o'clock in the morning. It's their favorite activity. <laughs> so it's like, it's a weird twilight zone that you're floating around in. And everybody wants to ask you how, you know, how are you? We've decided we don't, we don't use that question anymore because nobody has a good response for it. It's just like, especially the first couple of weeks. I was like, how are you? Terrible. I'm terrible. But what are you going to do? There was there. And then there's a lot of, you know, we're dealing a lot with everybody's has some kind of trauma going on right now, whether they were physically in an area that was infiltrated or just here. You know, I say, you know, I, I can't complain. I know where all my family members are and they're safe. I have friends who cannot say that. I wasn't at the, I wasn't here on October 7th, so I didn't see all the injuries. And I obviously wasn't in any of the areas where there, where the terrorists infiltrated, but everybody 
is going through some sort of trauma. And then there's all those feelings of guilt. Well, my trauma is bigger than your trauma and I'm not allowed to feel it. And I can't even imagine how these people feel and how that people feel. And then you're trying to be a, a professional also. Half of the people who are coming into the ER are people who are having anxiety or having panic attacks or, or any kind of stress reaction that you can imagine. A lot of people are coming in with physical symptoms that are physical it's due to the trauma that they've gone through. We're trying to also learn a little bit on the fly of how to be better at treating these patients and at the same time, we're all kind of experiencing the same thing to varying degrees. So it's just, it's like an entire group of people who are traumatized and trying to see who can be, who can function the most normally out of the dysfunctionality that is existing is kind of the feeling. And it's what's so stressful about this particular time as opposed to any of the other times is nobody knows when it's going to end. It's that kind of uncertainty of nobody knows when it's going to end. Nobody knows what it's going to look like. Everybody just kind of feels in limbo, which also on a, on a psychological level lends to that feeling of not being in control. And it lends to that feeling of not being able to deal with the traumatic event because you just feel like you don't know when it's going to end. So we're learning to how to better treat patients with that. And then at the same time, we're trying to deal with ourselves. When I'm seeing this with my the paramedics, also I work with MADA, a lot of them in this area were physically down in the Gaza envelope the day that all this happened. So they have all their own traumas. There were a lot of paramedics and, and medics that, that, you know, were killed or kidnapped. So everyone's going through their own things. And then for us, at least in the medical field, especially the emergency medical field, our, our general MO is we just go to work and we're fine and we go to work and we're fine and we go to work. And it's almost, it's, we have to do that. That's how we've learned to function. That's you're trained to do. It's not just that we're trained to do it. You hold on to it. Like I keep saying, thank God I have work because otherwise I don't know what I'd be doing with myself. It's like an anchoring thing, but it also lets you kind of push things to the side and not have to deal with them. So I see everyone's like, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm working. I'm fine. I'm working. And you kind of leave everything else to the side and hope that you don't have to deal with all those other things because you're supposed to take care of people, not the other way around. You said you had more stories. Did we get to them? It's funny because the stories that, you know, it's, it's crazy. The stories that I have, you know, one of, one of, the patient, the patient that made me cry in the past month had nothing to do with the war. <laughs> that was crazy. I've seen so many people who have these horrible stories and people coming in and they're displaced from their houses and their family members are missing or dead and where they, they were at the, the music festival. But I remember specifically, I was working a couple weeks ago on a Saturday night and this young woman came in around my age from woman wearing a tichel with her husband and she woke up in the middle of the night and she had a seizure and basically it turns out that she'd been having headaches for a few months and had kind of ignored them she came in with a seizure and to make a very long story short in a very short period of time i had to give her medicines to stop the seizure and then i had to put a breathing tube down her throat and all of this stuff and we basically found that she had some kind of mass in her brain 31 year old woman totally healthy 
and we're not sure cancer not cancer but she's got a tumor in her brain basically and i just remember seeing her husband's like completely destroyed this she's completely out i i and i admitted her and she was supposed to be transferred to another hospital because our hospital doesn't have neurosurgery and i left that that shift that morning and i was like destroyed i was like this is terrible this is awful and i've seen so many awful things specifically in the past few weeks but also in general this was the thing that just felt to me like why why you know and i was sure i was sure she was dead I was sure she was dead and it just like it was it was a bad case it took me a few days to shake it off and and it's just really a sally did you follow up and find out what happened to her well i didn't really have much of a way to follow up because she went to another hospital and also you know my general thing i'm an er doctor so so every once in a while i try to follow up i actually she had stayed in the icu for 12 hours until they managed to transfer her. So I actually did go down and check on her in the ICU before I went home at the end of my shift after a few hours. But I figured I wasn't going to find out what happened to her. You know, in the moment, I didn't think to take her details and then to text someone at another hospital. It's also one of our ways of, of dealing with those kinds of patients is you kind of, at least for me as an ER doctor, I send them off into the void and then they go off into the void. Uh, there's a reason, you know, I work in, in, in acute care where I'm not following people long-term, but every once in a while there is a patient that you're just like, wow, I really wish I knew what happened to them. So I was about a week and a half later, I was working a day shift and suddenly I saw her walk in to the ER, like on her own feet. And I ran over to her. She went to the triage nurse. And I see her and her husband and I ran over to her and I was like, oh my God, you're here. And she goes, and she's like, hello. <laughs> and I was like, I know you don't remember me because you were unconscious, but I took care of you when you came in a week and a half ago. And she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I don't remember you. I was like, don't be sorry. Come, let me take you to your bed here. And basically her husband said, she and her husband told me that they had gotten transferred to another hospital. She had woken up. They took the breathing tube out. They did an MRI. They did surgery on her the next day. They got the whole tumor and they sent her home. And she came in because everything hurt. <laughs> the poor thing. She had chest pain and she had like arm pain. And basically just her whole body hurt because she was in the hospital. And people get beat up in the hospital. <laughs> That's just unfortunately, you know, getting IVs and getting things and whatever. It hurts. So I checked her out. We did. We, we made sure everything was okay. And I literally, she was, my, I took her as my personal patient. We have two sides of the ER and the charge nurse decides where the patient's going to go. And I was like, no, no, this is my patient. I'm taking care of her. And, you know, I came in, I told her everything's fine. You can go home. And she looked at me and she said, can I give you a hug? And I was like, absolutely. You can give me a hug. And usually I don't let patients hug me. <laughs> right. And she, I literally, I started crying. I was like, I, I literally thought she was dead. And that was, it had nothing to do with the war, but because everything is so big and so not clear and no control over things, that case, it did me like the most bad in terms of my mood. And then also made me feel the best about my mood. And I didn't really do anything. Yeah, like I took care of her in that first time, but the fact that she walked in the second time was just total chance that she walked in on my shift and I recognized her and it was only a week and a half later. 
but it was just like such a nice, it was something that really, we talk about resilience and being able to deal with things. And those are the little things that make you, okay, I can, I can deal with the next two, three, seven, 14 days because this one thing went right. So I think, especially in, in my job, which is always stressful and always life and death. I mean, it's not always, we get a lot of patients who have ingrown toenails. Yeah. <laughs> but the potential for those kinds of cases, you know, people think the cases you remember are the ones where you do these amazing heroics and save someone's life. But it's very small things that are really the things that you're like, okay, it's good. I was here today. I did something or this was something good that happened today. And it's not always the big dramatic thing. It's it's the very small things. It's that when the soldier came in, I was able to help him call his mom. And then he heard my accent and he said, oh, you're from America. I'm from America too. And the fact that he was like, I'm okay, mom, I'm safe. I'm here. Like he was for, from his perspective, as soon as he got in that helicopter, he was safe. As soon as they took him out of Gaza and he came to us, he was safe. I was nervous because I still had work to do, but he, he was calm. He was fine. So it's, you realize it's the, when something like this happens, you start thinking big of like, what's going to be and how are we going to deal? And what about our, you know, our families and our kids? And you just kind of have to bring yourself back, put your feet on the ground and be like, what can I do right now? For me, it's that I have. Uh, a patient came in also last week I was working in our low acuity area what we call fast track and that day I called it my Azaka clinic everybody who came in it was because something happened during a siren and they came in so I had this woman who came in and she's about 48 years old and she was complaining of some numbness somewhere and she said I just yesterday got up from sending shiva for my daughter she's 48 years old her daughter was young like, did she die during the war? Did she not die during the war? I don't know. So I said, we're going to check you out medically and see what's going on. But is it okay if I have my social worker come talk to you also? She said, okay. So it turns out that her daughter was chronically ill and had undergone a liver transplant surgery. And it was not successful. And she died a week before. Again, this is all part of the war, but not related to the war. But Nobody had thought to offer her any kind of services. The social worker said nobody gave her any kind of recommendation for therapy or anything. And it's kind of those day-to-day normal tragedies that fall to the wayside when something so big is going on. And those are also the people you have to remember to take care of because this is a well-known phenomenon that's studied, but like the incidence of domestic violence and child abuse, anytime there's a stressful period that goes up. So we've seen a huge spike in domestic violence cases, again, not related to anything specifically to the war, except that stressful situations exacerbate pre-existing conditions. So it's being on the lookout for people who maybe are in tenuous situations, people who have pre-existing PTSD or trauma, all these things are exacerbated. And a lot of them feel guilty trying to get help because they feel like they're taking they're taking those resources away from somebody else and there's no like trauma comparison game (laughs) no that on a very basic physiologic level what happens is you have the part of your brain called the amygdala that's in charge of your fight flight or freeze response and it releases certain hormones and it it causes a reaction in your hippocampus 
which activates memories of trauma. And that's, uh, that's a little bit about like the mechanism of how PTSD happens, but your brain is dumb. Your brain doesn't know what triggers those feelings. It just releases the same feeling. So it doesn't matter what your trauma was. If you're stressed or if you go through trauma, those same feelings are triggered. And so your response is the same, no matter what. I think that all of the, it's very important to be focused on what's going on, but at the same time, it's important to realize that we have to take care of everybody. And that means yourself. That means other people who maybe are trying to be okay because they weren't directly affected by the situation is, that's going on. And I think just everybody being a little bit more sensitive and a little bit more aware and just a little bit more willing to like reach out to people and be like, hey, what's going on? Because we say we don't ask people if they're okay, but hey, what's going on? Because it's amazing to give support to all the people who have literally lost their homes. I literally have colleagues who do not have a house anymore and they're still coming to work. And I feel dumb complaining that like, you know, my, my room isn't clean, you know? But at the same time, there's also that normalization of people just trying to go back to some kind of semblance of living because that's the only way you can function. I think that's like the weird, we're kind of doing regular life, but everybody knows it's not regular. Everybody knows that this is a weird, especially with all the hostages and the people who are just don't know when they're going to be able to go home. It's not a regular like, oh, there's rockets. It'll be over in a week or two. At the same time, like you can't put life completely on pause. You know, also there's the whole, a lot of the system is just kind of crashing because so many people are in Halloween. Think about how many people just have to drop everything. Think about like if you were told right now they you have to drop everything and go to the army. People don't have people and there's no certain areas. There's no school and certain schools aren't functioning because half of their teachers are in Midulim. So there's all of these basic things that aren't happening because we're at war. So it's trying to find a balance between everybody knows we're at war and everybody knows we need to be a little bit more creative and flexible in what we are and aren't doing. There are things that are going to take a backseat and not be a priority right now. But at the same time, you can't just pause everything indefinitely because right now it is sort of indefinite. We don't know when it's going to end. If we knew when it was going to end, it would be easier to plan, but we don't. So you have to, you have to address it with what you have right now. And that's the, I guess that's the feeling that we have at work also, just in terms of what's our schedule and what are we doing. And I think everybody, at least for me, when I have that at work, it helps me translate it into the rest of my life. So having work is a very grounding thing because I know I need to be somewhere and I know I have to do something. And so it makes me feel weird when people are like, you're so amazing, you're working. And I'm like, are you kidding? I, I was begging for them to let me go to work. The week that I wasn't here was horrible. It was awful being far away. And, and even though you can't do anything, but even here, even if I'm not doing something, at least I'm here. And at least I'm at the hospital and I'm doing the thing that I, that I was trained to do and that I know I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm not volunteering and helping with people who are, who are turned out of their home. There are people who are doing amazing, amazing things from that same feeling of I need to be able to do something. 
but it's also realizing that it's a marathon, not a sprint, and you have to take care of yourself too. So you have to find some kind of middle ground of I'm giving and I'm helping, but also at the same time, I'm I'm living my life. And, and it's hard to find that. And it's also, it's exhausting because you want to feel, right? Everyone's, people are, it's hard to describe the feeling here. It's people are angry. It's not just sad. It's sad and scared and angry and angry at a lot of things. Yeah. There was like a big, a big a feeling of that the, that the country let us down. Like the people were supposed to tech, protect us didn't protect us and they let us down. There's a lot of, a lot of complicated feelings and a lot of it is, is more stemming from, from rage than just sadness. And so you need to, it's, you need to find somewhere to put that. And some people are, are allowing it to pass easier than others. And feeling that all the time is also exhausting. So at some point you just kind of want to go back to normal and you feel guilty about going back to normal, but it's okay. Like you're allowed to go back to normal. You don't have to be on all the time. You don't have to feel everything all the time. And so it's that balance. And so as a emergency, as an emergency medical provider, I you see it from both the side of treating people and then from the side of yourself. So it's a lot of advice that I give to other people and then wouldn't take myself, <laughs> but, but it's important. And I'm going to work. A lot of the volunteering I'm doing is, you know, we're helping with a lot of training. I've trained, I've, I'm in a group. My boss is kind of spearheading it, but just training medical, not just paramedics, medical corps in the army. Also volunteer first responders, also medical corps in the army that on their, in their day-to-day jobs, they don't do trauma. You know, family doctors and gynecologists that are being called up to Miluim that need a refresher on what we do with trauma, things that I do all the time, but they don't. So we've done that. I was in a hospital up north consulting with them about their mass casualty plan because up north, if there starts to be rockets up there, it's a whole other story. So that's the little piece that I can do just from my own skills to be able to contribute a little bit extra. But at the same time, um, my parents live a block away from me. I'm going to visit my my siblings, trying to just trying to do life as well as you can the new normal. Thank you, Dini, so much for coming on and sharing your experience, your thoughts, and the pain that's being experienced. Thank you for having me. I hope it was interesting, little rambling stories, but, um, but, uh, what made you want to come share? I think just people, I've had a lot of people asking me, what's it like, what's going on? And I think a lot of people felt like I was blowing them off a little bit because I started answering just in emojis, but it was just, it's just too much. It's just too much to say all the time what you're feeling. You know, when people ask you, how are you? They don't really want to know how you are, right? That's, that's a known thing. And even if they do want to know how you are, you're like, I just, I can't get into this conversation right now. (laughs) So I think just kind of maybe trying to convey, maybe for people who are outside of Israel, talking to the people who are in Israel, if we're being, you know, a little bit more distant than usual or not answering, or it's not because we don't appreciate the support. It's not because we don't feel it. It's because it it feels too much. Um, And in order to be able to function, you just kind of have to go through the day um, so the support is appreciated. Like I, every single text that I got, I really, really appreciated 
you know, I'm still getting people texting me, I'm thinking about you, I hope everything's okay. Um, so even with the fact that it's exhausting to respond to each person and say, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, work is busy. Yeah, it's okay. Um, Better to get them this- than not. Yeah. So keep reaching out, but don't don't be insulted if you don't get a big response in return. It's not you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Good luck with your shift. I know you have to run now. Be safe. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Now. And you'll be able to send this link when people ask you how you are next time. Okay. Cool. Okay. Wow. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hold on a sec. Thank you for listening until the end. Please keep sending messages, feedback, suggestions. Keep praying for our soldiers and our kidnapped, all the injured. May we hear good news soon. See you next time.